and welcome everyone to this week's episode of STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM and to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Yulver and myself, Amar. Today, we are very excited to bring you a very special guest, Dr. Nassim, who we will learn a lot about over uh, the course of this podcast. So hello, Dr. Nassim, how are you doing? Pretty good, how are you? Good, thank you, good, thank you. So um, I guess we can get started with the interview right away. So our first question here is uh, just to start off with a little brief introduction about yourself. I am a surgical oncologist um, at the Ottawa Hospital and I do cancer surgeries. Uh, so I am uh, in an academic center with the University of Ottawa. So I'm also a teacher and assistant professor of surgery. So I teach residents and medical students, and I'm also a researcher. So I do a lot of research um, in my field. The main cancers that I treat are skin cancer, gastric cancer, and soft tissue sarcoma, which are very rare large tumors in the abdomen. And um, yeah, I love my job. I work at the Ottawa General Hospital, and that's about it. <laughs> okay, so on this podcast, we have had guests have talked about cancer from a molecular perspective. How, however, can you provide us a little insight with the surgical aspect of cancer and how this is used as a viable treatment option? Uh, so if you catch disease early enough, um, and in most cases, hopefully we can, uh, you can remove the entire tumor to hopefully provide a cure for the patient. Um, so surgery's role is mainly to remove the cancer from the patient and ultimately uh, many cancers after surgery might get either a form of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And when you combine all of those treatments together, which we call probably a multimodal treatment, we tend to have better survival and better outcomes uh, to try to cure cancer patients. So what, what other professions do you work with when treating these type of cancers and how do they help you with the treatment process? So as I mentioned, there's the medical oncologist and they're the specialists that give chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, all the medications against cancer. And then you have the radiation oncologists. They're the ones who provide a lot of strong radiation or rays uh, to a tumor bed to prevent a cancer from coming back locally. A medical oncologist, when they give their drugs, it's really to prevent a cancer from spreading to another organ. Um, we obviously work with our pathologists because they're the ones who give us the diagnosis. And especially if it's a rare cancer or a weird type, they give us a lot of insight into what that disease is about. We work with radiologists because CT scans that diagnose the cancer and where the cancer is and is it invading structures that you can actually take out or not? Because there's some things you just can't cut out. <laughs> you wouldn't live if you'd cut those things out. So the radiologist you know, helps us with looking over scans and the extent of disease and where is the tumor. Um, and then obviously we work with nurses because without nurses, um, we'd never be able to do our jobs. So um, then there's physiotherapy for after the treatment of cancer, occupational therapy. It's a very large team. We work uh, all together uh, throughout the entire cancer journey of the patient. Wow, that's amazing. That's a, a complicated task, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, 
Our next question is more about like the development of, of uh, surgery as uh, a treatment option. So like how has this kind of uh, treatment changed since your time in medical school? And uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about like the breakthroughs that have allowed these changes to happen? Um, I'd say we've been operating on cancer for a really long time. <laughs> surgery tends to stay very much the same <laughs> for many, many years before things change. I would say some of the few breakthroughs we've had is laparoscopic surgery, where you can now operate through three small little holes in a camera without opening a patient wide open to take the tumor out. I would argue that in very big cancers, that's still not possible. <laughs> you still have to open the patient because you need space to pull out the tumor itself, which can be quite large. But there are some cancer patients that can get laparoscopic surgery. Laparoscopic surgery is mainly for benign disease. Um, inpatient, but you can do colon cancers, for example, laparoscopically. Uh, that way, small incisions, faster recovery time, you know, go home a lot faster from the hospital, things like that. Um, in terms of other innovations, we now have multiple coagulation devices and staplers and things like that to prevent bleeding or to allow for better approximation of tissues. And I think all of those inventions over the years um, have improved outcomes and decreased risks and complications and shortened surgery time and how long it takes to operate. So I think that's pretty important innovations that have come through. And then the most recent innovation that's pretty interesting is the idea of ICG. ICG is a green dye for a better, I can't explain it more simply, but a green dye that you inject IV into the patient during an operation and it can show you the vascular supply to the structures. And so you make sure that, you know, your structures have a good blood supply before you connect them together. Because that's very important because two pieces of bowel, when you connect them together, you want it to heal properly. And so if the vascular supply is good, then it will heal very nicely and it won't leak because we can, you know, the risk of, connecting any two pieces of bowel together is that it leaks. So, and that's not a, that's a bad complication for a patient. So lots of different innovations that are, that are coming down and there's more, there's robotic surgery, which is now 3D and a robot that helps you while you sit at a console and you operate sitting down at a, at a computer screen while the robot's arms are moving, but it's still led by the surgeon. So I think a lot of people think it's the robot operating. It's not, it's still the surgeon operating, <laughs> even in robotic surgery, just different tools. So lots of different things. So can you talk to us a little about your journey to where you are today, like the entire process? Yeah, my journey was kind of long. Um, I was not someone, so I'm from Quebec originally, and I'm from Montreal. So there is a pre-med program where you can apply to medical school right after CGIP. Um, I applied, I did not get in. <laughs> and so I applied to a bachelor's in physiology at McGill. I got into the bachelor's of physiology. I did one year. And I noticed that uh, everyone in like seven different bachelor's degrees wanted to get into medicine. So you had physiology, microbiology, anatomy, uh, and the list went on and on, immunology. So all these science bachelor's degrees, like there was a lot of people 
in those programs that wanted to get into medicine. And so I noticed it was very, very competitive. Um, so I decided that I would try to be more competitive and apply for the honors program to try to be more noticed. Um, but in the meantime, I kind of realized that if I didn't get into medicine, I would be a scientist in a lab. And I knew that that's not what I wanted. I absolutely wanted to work with patients. So at the same time of applying for the honors program, I asked for a transfer into physiotherapy or occupational therapy. I applied to both. Um, they said, that's really hard. We only take 20 transfers a year. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm still gonna apply because I don't think I wanna be a physiologist. And at least there's patients at the end of a therapy kind of degree. So I applied and I got into occupational therapy. I also got into the honors program, um, but I decided to go towards the therapy route because I felt if I don't get into medicine, at least I'm working with people and not a scientist in a lab. So I dropped out of physiology and I transferred into occupational therapy, which was another three years at McGill. And I graduated. And then um, it was actually hard to get a job in Canada. I searched and searched and it was really challenging. Um, and so eventually I got a call from a recruiter from New York City who said, would you like to come and be an OT in New York? And I said, sure, why not? <laughs> I might as well try because there's no work here. So I moved to New York City and I worked as an occupational therapist in pediatrics for two years. And I did, you know, I loved my job. I did some really cool things. I was working in the Bronx and Harlem and with autistic kids and crack cocaine babies and the whole thing. And it was very, very cool. But after two years, I kind of realized I still wanted to be a doctor. It just made me realize that I still, I really still wanted to be a doctor. So I decided I was going to apply to medical school. Um, but I had missed the deadline for the MCAT. <laughs> I'm really not the typical person at all who gets into medical school, like at all. It was, um, it was in my mind some ways meant to be um, because I only had one shot and that was that. So I missed the MCAT and I didn't want to wait a whole year. So I found the schools that didn't require an MCAT, which was McMaster in Ottawa at the time. And I said, okay, I'm gonna apply to McMaster in Ottawa. And then when I was calling my dean of, at McGill for a reference letter, she said, well, you're from Quebec. Like you're never gonna get into those programs. It's too competitive and you're not from Ontario. So out of province students are, you know, don't get an easy chance. There's a minimal number of out of province students that get accepted. Like you need to apply to school in Quebec. And I said, yeah, but I missed the MEMCAP from McGill. And she's like, so why aren't you going, why aren't you applying to the University of Montreal? And I said, well, it was French. And she's like, I've heard you speak French. You speak French is fine. <laughs> like the textbooks are in English. The teaching is in French. You can do it. You can speak French. It'll be fine. And they love our students. So I recommend, I strongly recommend you apply. And I said, okay. Um, and then I looked it up and the deadline was in three days. And so I had to put my application together and I did, and I rushed and uh, I was in New York City 
So I got my mom to hand deliver it because I was worried that it wouldn't get there on time. And um, ultimately, the only interview I got was the first day of Montreal. <laughs> um, and I lucked out and got in. Uh, and so here I am, medical school was four years. After medical school, you have to decide on a specialty. So you can either do family medicine, which is a two-year program, or you can do a specialty, which is usually a five to six-year program, depending on the specialty. Um, there are seven surgical specialties, and there are a multitude of specialties in internal medicine, radiology. I mean, there's more than 56 or 57 specialties that you can select from. So it's a vast uh, arena of different things. I mean, when you're doing your clerkship and your medical degree, so medicine is two years of you know, learning and didactic teaching and problem-based learning at the school, at the university, but your third and fourth year, you're basically in the hospital working with residents and as a clerk and you see patients and you learn how to see patients and how to take a good history and how to decide a treatment plan and all that. And then you need to get reference letters during that time and do electives and the stuff that you're interested in. I did all my electives actually in obstetrics gynecology because I thought I wanted to be a gynecologist. Um, and I ended up doing my rotation in general surgery near the end of my clerkship and realized that I loved it. But none of my electives were in general surgery. So I thought, okay, it's going to be hard to get into gen surge if I have zero electives in gen surge. Um, but I wrote and hopefully a really good letter to explain why I was making this switch because it was pretty obvious that I was wanted gynecology and obstetrics. I mean, I still interviewed with Bob's guide because you can't take the risk of getting nothing. So I interviewed probably in 10 OBSGYNE programs across the, the country and only three general surgery programs because those are the only three that gave me a, a chance or four. I think I got four interviews for general surgery, so not very many, um, likely because I didn't have electives. <laughs> um, but then luckily I got accepted um, at the University of Montreal, so I took that. And um, you do five years of general surgery training then you become a general surgeon. And then during your general surgery training or during any training of a specialty in medicine, you then get asked, well, do you wanna be a community doctor or do you wanna be a specialist and an academic physician? Because there's a difference. If you uh, finish your residency, you can go and work in the community and you can work at a community hospital and you do the general stuff of your practice. Um, but you don't necessarily teach and you don't do research. Um, and you're not affiliated to a university center. So you may not also do the most complex cases. You could do some complex cases, but when they get too complex, you have to refer them in general to the academic center. So if you realize that you have an interest in being an academic surgeon, then you have to work again. There's a lot of interviews and a lot of competition throughout your entire a journey in medicine, like, you know, getting into medical school, then getting into residency, then from residency, getting into a fellowship. So during your residency, if you notice that there's something about your program that you like more, because every specialty divides into another, sometimes five or six subspecialties. 
So the amount of specialties in medicine are hard to count. There's probably more than 100 when you think about it. Um, and in general surgery, one of the subspecialties is oncologic surgery or surgical oncology, which is really the care for cancer patients. And even then, there's a whole variety of cancers that general surgeons treat. They can treat breast cancer, skin cancer, colon cancer, um, soft tissue sarcoma, gastric cancer, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, a whole bunch of different things. And so eventually when you become a specialist, you usually treat maybe two to three cancers maximum. You're not gonna treat all of them. And um, you kind of pick what you like. And so you do electives again in surgical oncology so that people get to know you and you get interviews uh, across the country and interviews in the United States because this is a match program with the US and Canada combined. So you apply, you get a bunch of interviews. I applied, I got a bunch of interviews and I got into surgical oncology at the University of Toronto. So I did that for two years. And then after being in Toronto for two years, I felt that I wanted to do a bit more in skin cancer and soft tissue sarcoma. And the place in the world that has the most skin cancer is Australia. <laughs> so I contacted a hospital there, a cancer center there, and said, I'd like to come and spend some time with you guys doing melanoma and sarcoma. And eventually they said yes. And so I went and did, I went to Melbourne, Australia, to the Peter McCollum Cancer Center, uh, where I did another uh, six months of training with them, then traveled for six months. And then, oh, I forgot also, after my residency, I did my master's degree. So I did work in a lab and I got my master's degree um, because you can't actually work in an academic center without a master's degree. So I did do that as well. <laughs> and then I went to Toronto and then I went to Australia. Um, in the meantime, I had a baby in the middle of all that with a bit of a maternity leave, although my maternity leave was uh, four months. Not very long. Most doctors do not have long maternity leaves. Um, you can have a year, you can take a year of maternity if that's what you want. Um, but I would say most people don't because they just want to finish their <laughs> training because it's already long enough as it is. Um, and then I went to Australia for six months. I traveled for six months to finally get a break. And then I came back, interviewed in a bunch of places, and Ottawa just had the perfect fit. And so that's why I chose Ottawa. And here I am. And I've been here for seven years. So 17 years of university. That's how long it took. 17 years of university. Wow, that's a that's a long journey. <laughs> I yeah. feel like that's like almost two to three times what people usually do in terms of school. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's yeah. it's part of your life, right? It becomes it yeah. becomes part of your life. I think you can kind of see residency and fellowship almost more like a job mm -hmm. than university because you're working and you're paid. So you still have to write exams. And you're still being evaluated and still a training but you're working, like you see patients, you operate on patients, you do stuff, you go to the clinic. Like, so the residency and the fellowship, which is like a good seven to eight years, and you're working and you're getting paid. So it's not, it's not quite like sitting in a class with didactic uh, learning for seven years. So it's a very different kind of university training. Yeah, would you say you enjoyed that part more than, than just like the learning aspect? 
Yeah, I mean, the learning aspect is essential or else you're not going to be good. But um, yes, I obviously like the clinical stuff more. And uh, but you need to when you need to learn, you need to study, you need to read or else you can't do the clinical stuff because you have to have knowledge (laughs) (laughs) or else it won't be as you still read on the weekends. You still have exams. You're still being evaluated by your preceptors. Like it's still like training. It's just a, it's a different kind of training. I guess the equivalent would be almost like being in a co-op program. Oh yeah, yeah really, really bachelor's really degree, co-op right? Co-op. Like it's there's yeah. these bachelor's degrees that have co-op programs where you actually go out into the workforce and you you do what you got to do, right? So mm-hmm. it's a little bit like that. That makes sense. Uh, our next question would be uh, just talking about the research aspect of your career. So you are a researcher and you did do your master's degree. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the type of research that you focus on and and uh, kind of I guess so the main your master's degree. My master's degree and my research are not <laughs> totally matched and you'll and that kind of happens sometimes because you'll have a super great interest and then you'll do all this stuff but then practically when you're working it might not be so easy to make that happen. My master's degree was very basic science. We were looking at RNA expressions and breast cancer to determine a molecular profile that predicted resistance to hormone therapy in breast cancer. So very in the lab, pipetting, doing RNA extractions, doing PCR, doing all that kind of stuff. Very biological, very molecular biology and genetics of cancer. Um, And it was a great experience and I learned an enormous amount. And I think it makes me a better surgical oncologist because I understand all of these things. But in my current practice, that's not the kind of research that I do Um, because I don't run my own lab. There are some surgeons that become surgeon scientists and they actually do both. They do surgery and they run their own research lab, which is very impressive. Um, We have a few of those in our hospital, but I am not one of them. (laughs) I do, however, collaborate with scientists in the lab because we do have the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and there are multiple PhDs. Uh, that work at that institute, that are principal investigators of genetic and molecular biology and all these kinds of, uh, you know, basic science research. And I do collaborate with them. So we get project ideas, we do, and it's called bench to bedside research, meaning you're doing research that really can be put into the clinic as soon as possible or translational research is what it's called. So I'll obviously provide all the cancer tissues for them to use in their labs, um, to analyze and to do research. So I have a few projects ongoing with some PhDs at OHRI, but my main research that I publish on is, is large database research. So I have databases of patient information on different cancers. So the two cancers I treat the most are melanoma and soft tissue sarcoma. And I also have a gastric cancer database so I have lots and lots, hundreds of patients in this database that we've inputted all of their clinical information. And then you ask a key clinical question and you analyze it, you write up a manuscript, and then you submit it for publication and uh, you try to just learn more about diseases. You try to learn more about what we're treating to see how we could make treatments better. Um, so that's most of the type. I do a lot of clinical research. 
So that's most of the type of research that I do. And uh, I couldn't do it without my medical students and residents and fellows who input all the data into the databases, do the analysis and do a lot of the writing. I'm very much a supervisor that guides them, gives them clinical research questions and ideas, um, but get them involved. So we do work as a, as a research team together to get these things done. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so this is our last question. And basically, what advice would you give to students, high school students, undergrad students who are trying to pursue a surgical oncology degree or oncology itself, something in that field? To be honest, I don't think you can start by hoping that you want oncology because it's <laughs> such a long path and you think you want oncology now, but until you do it, you have no idea what you want. That's the reality. When I went to my medical school interview and they asked me, what do you think you want to be? I said, a pediatrician. I am not wow. a pediatrician today. Wow. Yeah. Um, right? Because we don't know what it is all about until we're in it. So the first goal should not be, and if you want to be a surgical oncologist, great, and then keep going down that path if you realize that it still is a passion as you go through. But for a high school student, it's get good grades to get a good degree and get into a good bachelor's degree. Like that's all you have to really focus on. <laughs> like, because if you don't get the grades and you're not um, someone who's versatile and has volunteer experience and you have to be very, um, you know, diverse. Your CV needs yeah. to be yeah. diverse. Yeah. If the CV is only like, I have good grades, that's probably not going to get into medical school in 2020 um, because they need people that have good bedside manner that have shown that they're empathetic. Um, you know, there's that you do other things in your life uh, other than medicine or other than school that show your ability to be balanced and humane. <laughs> right. So volunteer work you know if your passion is sports and you're like a super athlete or if your passion is music and you play at the conservatory on your piano or awards that you've done or organizations that you've started or you know how have you been a leader what are the things that show that you've been a leader in the past obviously if you've done research during your bachelor's degree that's a plus Right, like I would say that if I was to try to get into medicine, let alone surgical oncology, which I've already told you, I mean, the hurdles are over and over again, right? Because you're applying for a position every two to three years and you're competing for that spot every two to three years. And the further you go along that track, the more competitive it gets. So the first step is get into medical school. <laughs> And then you can decide if you'll get anywhere else because you just, you need to get into medical school to be able to become a surgical oncologist or any other specialty for that matter. Um, and I think the key to getting into medical school is honestly just having a passion for it, showing that you care, showing that this is something that was meant to be for you, um, that you couldn't do anything else and that it's a calling and that you really wanna be a doctor and that you've worked really hard, but there's no magical potion. I wish there was like a, if you do step A, B and C, you'll get in. 
because I mean, I've seen many very excellent students with excellent grades that still don't get in. So you kind of wonder, well, why or how? But it could be that, you know, just a little detail that was missing or I don't know. But I, I think having a versatile CV showing that you can do a lot of things and that you're a good leader and you know, going to talk to doctors, maybe spending some time with them, doing some research with a doctor as well could be helpful um, as well. And um, yeah, and just when you get to the interview, be passionate. Show them that you have a goal. Show them that this, this is, you want to do this. This is, you're sure about it. You've thought about it. You know that it requires dedication. You know that it requires hours. Like we didn't get through how it is to be a resident, but it was the hardest five years of my life. You're lucky if you sleep. You're lucky if you eat. You're lucky if you see other people in your life. You practically live at the hospital. You have to be ready for that. That's, it's a commitment. Being a doctor is a commitment, and being a doctor is sacrifice. And if you're not ready for that kind of commitment or sacrifice, then it might not be the profession for you. Because you're going to miss holidays with your family because you'll be on call. And you're going to miss special events for your kids because your clinic is running late. You cannot just walk out on a patient. And so there is a work-life balance and you have to work on that work-life balance. But it's a true challenge. And for women especially. Because we have the children and the well, at least the viewpoint that we should be more responsible for our children, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but um, it's even harder, especially as a surgeon and even more so as an academic surgeon. So you just have to kind of really look at your life and look at what medicine is all about. And I strongly recommend you spend some time with a surgeon if that's what you want because then you could see what their lifestyle is like and then be like, oh yeah, I could totally do that. I love that. I want to do that. Or, oh crap, that's a lot more than I would have expected. Because surgery sounds really fun and it sounds like, oh my God, it's great. There are people that are going to die up under your hand. There are people that are going to complicate. There are people that are going to get very sick because not all surgeries go perfectly well like you planned. Um, so you have to be ready for that. You can't be an anxious person to be a surgeon. You have to be someone who's very steady, <laughs> very confident, very sure of themselves. You have to be someone who takes risks. If you're not a risk taker, you can't be a surgeon. Because at one point, you have to make a decision. Do I cut? Do I not cut? Well, better cut. Only one way to find out. <laughs> So you have to be a risk taker to a certain degree. Obviously, a reasonable risk taker, not a crazy person, <laughs> because you know your knowledge and you know your anatomy and you know your stuff, but you will encounter things that were unexpected. And you're gonna have to navigate around that and figure out how to fix the problem. Um, so there's a lot more to it than just, I'm a doctor, that's a title, I take care of people. It's way more than that. And so when I, you know, when I counsel people that want to do medicine, I say, you really have to think about this and be sure. 
because it's a lot of hours. My work week is in general 70 to 80 hours a week. Are you ready for that? <laughs> Do you want that in your life? It's a lot of hours. I, and by the time I um, finished my residency and my fellowship and my training, I was close to 39 years old. 37, 38, only one kid because, you know, things get delayed to get pregnant. And um, you don't have a house, you don't own a car, you just have a huge debt that you have to pay off. <laughs> so your life starts a little bit later than your friends that are not in medicine. Right? They'll probably have their house, their two cars, their four kids. That's not the reality in medicine. Yeah. So it's very different. And I think it is different for women than it is for men because if their wives are not doctors, probably all the kids are happening and things are happening on the side and their wives are able to do a lot of this stuff. But when you're the doctor as the woman, it's different. It really is. So it's... um. You know, it's a commitment, but the best thing I ever did in my life. I have absolutely no regrets. I love what I do. I mean, I know it's a lot of hours, but I I love it. Like, I don't regret it at all. And I think it's, like, one of the most rewarding jobs in the world. So I do love it. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> So uh, that's all of the questions that we wanted to ask you. And we wanted to thank Perfect. you very much for uh, taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to talk to us about this. Um, as for those of you at home, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and love to learn a little bit more about Dr. Nassim and her job. And we hope to see you again in two weeks for our next episode. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you.